my uh, great pleasure and welcome uh, everyone to uh, interview uh, one of the uh, men who was a, a giant uh, leading to the uh, birth of Isakos, and that's uh, David Marshall of uh, Adelaide, Australia. By way of uh, introduction, uh, uh, it's almost 50 years since David was the first fully trained uh, arthroscopy uh, surgeon from Australia. And he's been uh, teaching and sharing that knowledge uh, uh, ever since. Um, in about 1976, where uh, David was a founding member of the International Arthroscopy Association, and um, then he became uh, second vice president in 1987 and president uh, in 1993. And that was the time in Copenhagen when uh, a lot of the groundwork had been done for the merger of the International Society of the Knee and the International Arthroscopy Association, which eventually gave rise to uh, uh, Isakos. So David has a lot of uh, uh, experience and uh, recollections and will uh, sort of uh, start with uh, uh, with uh, his early days. David, look, thank you so much for giving up your time, which you've always been very generous with. Um, so we'll we'll just start with some of your earlier memories. First of all, you graduated medicine from the University of Adelaide, and you then chose uh, the specialty of orthopedics. What, what inspired you there? Well, I, I worked with, uh, in my second, second, second year residency, I, I worked at the REPAT with uh, um, Neville Wilson, who was a, a very, one of the very first people in South Australia to be, um, with Stannis Gunning, to, to be involved with orthopedics. I also became involved there with Jeff Jose and Brian Cornish. And subsequently, Brian uh, probably influenced me more than anyone else. And I went off and did uh, the usual thing of uh, study, 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 and getting my uh, Australian uh, fellowship. But in those days, we had to do general surgery as well. And so I had a training in general surgery and orthopedics, which I, I don't regret at all. It uh, has stood me, uh, it is... Uh, uh, been extremely good for me in my whole career of knowing uh, general surgery and, and on a couple of occasions when I used to do spinal surgery I was able to open open uh, the abdomen quite freely myself. But you didn't do your orthopaedics in Adelaide is that right? No, I, uh, what happened was uh, I decided to go to Queensland uh, where there was a uh, employment at the University of Queensland uh, in the medical school anatomy department and I did two years of anatomy teaching anatomy and studying myself the train the orthopedic training program was more advanced in Queensland I stayed and in fact the the big incentive was the salary the salary in Queensland <laughs> was uh, almost double that in South Australia. I mean, with with uh, two and a half, and then three kids. I came back to Adelaide to do a general surgery, and then I went back to Queensland and, and completed my uh, three years of orthopedic surgery. Well, you, you, you wound up in Toronto. Were there, were there role models in 
either Brisbane or Adelaide who who uh, uh, led you to seek a post in Toronto? Um, yes and no. Uh, what led me into the region that I eventually was my forte with no sports trauma and, 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 and lower limb surgery was uh, Ferg Wilson, who, uh, as you know, was a, a founding member of the uh, Australian Knee Society. And Ferg was uh, my boss, shall we say, in, at the Martyr in Queensland. Uh, and he influenced me. It was very interesting. He influenced me by his tibial osteotomies in those days. And when I came back to Adelaide, Brian Cordes said to me, uh, well, you know, there are a few things on the horizon. You, you know, if you get a chance to go to Toronto, you, you should go there and, and, and learn about arthroscopy because Bob Jackson came to Australia in, in, to the combined meeting in uh, 1971. And uh, the Melbourne people gave him a very difficult case of which he broke the arthroscope because <laughs> it was a what now being 21 in those days. And, uh, and so that's how I got to Toronto. Oh, so you were even uh, on the way to Toronto, you were kind of focused on, uh, let's say, orthopedic sports medicine and, uh, and, and even the uh, early days of arthroscopy. Yeah, I, uh, I didn't quite know whether I wanted to be a, a, a sports medicine uh, orthopedic surgeon or a hand surgeon. I, in fact, uh, did a bit of both. But uh, when uh, I had the chance to spend uh, nine months with Bob Jackson twice a week, um, uh, that sort of sealed the, seal, sealed the deal, so to speak, of uh, where I should lead myself in the future. Because Toronto was... Yeah, I think it's fair to say one of the orthopaedic capitals of the world at that time with great names like uh, Salter and Simmons and McIntosh and yeah. uh, Dewar and McNabb and these people. My me uh, mentor and boss in, in, in Toronto was a fellow called Murray Wiley, who was a, a mad Irishman, but he, he did all his training at the Nuffield Centre. He came to Toronto and uh, he started using the, the new arthroscope, which was then the uh, first fibre light scope, uh, the same as Bob Jackson. And Murray taught me how to scope a shoulder in those days. And he also told me, because uh, I used to go out into private practice once a week and, and help uh, assist him. And then after I'd done my research projects, um, two things happened. One, he sort of said to me, you better go and see Bob Jackson. You've, you've, uh, all you've got to do is write up your research and that, that won't take a lot of time. Go and visit Bob Jackson. And the second thing was that one of my research projects was uh, uh, detection of DVT in hip surgery. So I went off to, first of all, I went to, uh, to uh, the Cleveland Clinic where a fellow called Mac Everts was, uh, was, uh, was head of surgery. Uh, and he eventually ended up as a president of the academy and the, knees, uh, the hip society. And with, at the Cleveland Clinic was uh, Ken DeHaven and John Burkfield. That combination, um, <laughs> looking at uh, uh, DVTs, et cetera, uh, led me further into the sports trauma and knee surgery field. Uh, oh, so you met up with uh, Bergie and Ken at that time? 
Yeah, and then when I finished my time in Toronto, which was the May of 74, um, I had arranged to spend the next six months with um, Mac Everts and, and John Burkfield. Uh, but Mac got a new posting as, as head of orthopedic surgery in, um, in Rochester, New York. And so I then went and only spent a month at the Cleveland Clinic uh, observing and seeing people and talking to, uh, and I spent most of my time with John Burkfield and Ken DeHaven, and that's how uh, I followed them almost just about everywhere yeah. they went. But you must have met a lot of other, uh, in that time in North America, you met a lot of other, uh, what are now kind of famous names in kind of knee surgery and sports trauma? I was so fortunate uh, that I, I was able to have that time with Jackson because when I went back in 1976 uh, for a visit, Bob said to me, listen, you better become a foundation member of the IAA. And um, that sort of led me uh, at another meeting. He said, oh, look, come with me. I'm going to a meeting down at Hilton Head, Car Carolina, uh, Hilton Head Island down at South Carolina. And there I met Jack McGinty and yeah. John Bush uh, and a fellow called Michael Harty, who was uh, from Chicago and an anatomist. Uh, there was uh, Larry Crane from Maine. Um, and there was also Ward Cassells. And they were the big names in, in, in the early part of um, uh, arthroscopy in those days. I know that um, these are the exciting times you had in, in those early years in North America, but when you came back to uh, Australia um, in the uh, early 70s and started doing arthroscopy, which was uh, to a large extent an unknown uh, procedure, uh, did you meet any controversy? Uh, was there a bit of sort of objection from the, uh, <laughs> shall I say, the establishment people? Uh, there was lots of objection. Uh, I used to get uh, funny little referral notes uh, telling me to, uh, uh, suggesting that I would look at a particular area of the knee and, and don't steal the patient, send the patient back to surgery. <laughs> uh, and uh, I used to, uh, even from uh, my, one of my mentors, uh, Jeff Jose, who was really very supportive, uh, after I'd spoken about uh, arthroscopy about three or four times, he said to me, for God's sake, when are you going to stop talking about this subject? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there were a lot of cartoons, weren't there? And, I, and, another, and another very interesting time was just after Greg King came back to Australia at 81, having spent 12 months with Jackson. I gave a talk on um, uh, the AOASM on uh, re reattaching menisci. Uh, and no one knew anything about it at that time. And, I, and somehow Ken Dehaven and myself, as, as you know, Ken was very much into reattaching uh, menisci. And we called that meniscioresis. Uh, uh, for some reason or other. Anyway, I gave a paper about reattachment of menisci and, and, and Greg gave an, a similar paper, and I just can't remember that, what that was. And we both sat down with our tails between our legs because about half the audience jumped up and, and told, told everyone that, that we were nuts. 
Uh, <laughs> and it was a stupid thing to do, but these people could have a vasectomy and they were back on the sporting field the next day and and uh, they never had anything wrong in the future. Or that was, yeah. Uh, Dave, can I go back to that, that uh, founding um, of yeah. the uh, IAA in 1976? <coughs> and, uh, is it right? Uh, Dr. Watanabe was the first president, is that right? Yes, it was, yes. And did, did you meet him? Did uh, you have recollections? I met him once, um, but it was, uh, you know, really something to to meet the sort of the, the father of, of the, the the modern day scoping. He developed uh, at the same time as Hopkins in in the UK. We developed the prism lens for for the modern day scope. Watton Harvey was doing that also. Bob Jackson started using it in 1972. Um, right. But, and when I came back to Australia, I bought bought one with me, and it was the first scope. Of, well, it wasn't. It was the first scope owned by someone, Orthopod, in Australia. Uh, there was a, a scope at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital here in Adelaide, uh, but that was used by rheumatologists. So I'll, I'll kind of fast forward to uh, ten years to let's say 1987 when you became second vice president of the International Arthroscopy Association. And it was a, a big year because that was the first year that the IAA and the ISK, the International Society of the Knee, had back-to-back -back congresses with uh, Dick Tooth from Sydney being uh, president of ISK. Yeah. Um, and you had a big uh, part to play in that congress? Yes, I did. Uh, I, I was uh, designated as a... Uh, the convener of the arthroscopy section. Uh, it, the whole meeting was uh, a, a huge success, um, uh, which followed on from the uh, arthroscopy meeting that um, Keane and myself arranged in Surface Paradise the year the Austra Australia won the America's Cup, which was 83. Uh, so, yes, it was, um, it, it was a really... Uh, um, great experience and, and of course at that stage the therapeutic side of arthroscopy was really go, going hammer and tongs and and uh, uh, people were starting to talk about reconstructive uh, uh, surgery with ACLs and, and various other aspects. Yeah because it was an extraordinary decade wasn't it that, that if yeah. you go back to 76 there were maybe two arthroscopes in Adelaide and maybe two in the other capital cities of Australia, and then you go to 87, and just about, and every hospital had one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. it was the difference between diagnostic and, and treatment arthroscopy, is that fair to say? I think so, yes, yes. Uh, I was, although I was very responsible for introducing um, scoping to, to Australia, um, Greg Keane was probably the first person to... Um, uh, have uh, a full set of instruments. Uh, the I bought when I went to the '79 meeting in Maui. I bought a set of uh, Storch instruments, which broke the second time I used them, um, and I then continued on from uh, as I did before '79, well, using um, uh, a pair of artery forceps and a pair of pituitary rod and a, 
and and um, uh, a fifteen blade fixed knife um, yeah. to do uh, appropriate sur arthroscopic surgery, and then. Then we went on from that with my late, in 87, I started with my late friend Bill, Bill Dunbar from California. Um, he and I started using, uh, designing a, an ACL um, uh, guide for ACL uh, reconstructions. Uh, well, talking about ACLs, I mean, you were in um, uh, Toronto there in, in those early 70s. Uh, and around about, of course, David McIntosh, yeah. uh, with his research work and the description of the pivot shift and, and it led to a much greater understanding of the ACL. So you would have had exposure in those early days to ACLs plus the arthroscopy. Um, yeah. When you came back to Australia, were you doing ACLs along the lines of David McIntosh? Yes, uh, that I started doing that in about '77 um, uh, because I only was exposed to it a little bit in in '74 when I was there with Jackson. Um, so I was exposed to all that, and then of course uh, we had the other um, versions from uh, Jack Houston and uh, Ellison. Uh, and various other combinations. And uh, there's no doubt that uh, Macintosh's uh, various forms of ACL reconstruction were far superior to, to um, uh, at that time, to um, uh, the Ellison and, and, and Houston stuff. Um, were these guys sort of easy to talk to, uh, happy to teach you and uh, no, good communicators? Yeah, Macintosh was very, very communicative. Um, uh, once he once he got, he got away from uh, people that stirred him up, he, and if you accompanied him out onto the onto the uh, footy field, um, yeah. uh, very, very communicative. Now, an important time uh, for you was 1993, uh, when you were president of IAA in in uh, Copenhagen. And I mentioned the introduction that, that by that time, a lot of groundwork had been done leading towards the subsequent merger, which gave rise to uh, uh, Isikos. And um, I know that on the uh, supportive side from arthroscopy were people like David Dandy and Gary Paling. And on the supportive side from ISK were uh, Ken DeHaven and, and Pete Fowler. Um, just to be a tiny bit negative, was there opposition? Yes, <laughs> particularly, from, <laughs> particularly from a number of our close colleagues in, in, uh, in, in Australia, mainly in Sydney. And I think it was all due to uh, uh, who they trained with uh, and yeah. had particularly been interested uh, uh, influenced by by their methods, I mean, we're all influenced by our mentors, and uh, but there were some people, <laughs> some people who were quite resistant to the whole thing. One of the arguments they used was that the two things really. Firstly, the arthroscope by this time was already being used in multiple joints, almost yeah. every synovial joint. The arthroscope was uh, was used for diagnostic or treatment purposes. And certainly that meant that they were getting away from the 
from the knee. So you yeah. are now partly shoulder, partly elbow, partly ankle, etc. Um, so I, uh, some of those, the opposition, I, I understand it was um, was quite difficult to overcome. Uh, yes, uh, I remember um, uh, when I first uh, became president in '91 in Toronto. Uh, one particular member of the board at that time, who was an Australian. Um, uh, we started to discuss the merger and uh, and David Dandy was, well, I took over in Toronto from David Dandy, uh, who had worked extensively with Ken Dehaven uh, at, at the time, because Ken was uh, uh, about to be president or was president of the uh, International Needs Society. So those two were very, uh, they were the, the did all the groundwork, but I remember at the first committee meeting that I had for IAA, uh, one of our colleagues from Sydney uh, uh, was quite vehement about his criticism of, 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 of joining up, and in fact he uh, got up in the middle of the meeting and left. Um, although subsequently he uh, was a very, very much uh, in favour of arthroscopy and knee surgery and all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah. Isikos was uh, coming up and uh, someone had to decide the uh, leadership, the um, uh, presidential roles, the treasurer, secretary, the board of directors. Um, how, did, how did all that happen? It was decided that uh, Pete Fowler should be the uh, the first president of Isakos because of his involvement with the ISK and uh, being uh, such a, a foundation person with all the with scoping and with uh, knee surgery, sports trauma. And it was then also because because Gary Paling was about to be the the next IAA. Uh, president uh, after Harold Eichler, um, it was decided that uh, Pete should be the, the first president of Isikos and I think uh, Gary was to be vice president. I, I think that's how it worked. I, but, that, but I had the responsibility of, of nominating, uh, being chairman of the nominations committee, to form the new board of Isikos and that was quite a, quite a uh, uh, a difficult thing because there was all new nations. There was Turkey, there was South America, uh, all sorts of new countries uh, were wanting to be part of the, the new uh, new organisation. And I um, I received great help from uh, Bob Leach, um, and um, and so Bob. Uh, uh, and I uh, formed, uh, got a group of people together and we discussed them and they all agreed to be members of the, the new board. Yeah, good, good. Well, now, going back historically a little bit, remember um, uh, the kind of uh, establishing arthroscopy and its competition with the arthrogram uh, <laughs> as to what was the... Uh, more accurate thing, and I think it's it's fair to say that uh, in terms of diagnostic arthros uh, accuracy, that the arthroscopy gradually conquered the arthrogram. Yes, that's right. I remember there were many meetings um, 
particularly in, in uh, our various state orthopedic meetings uh, where various uh, people would uh, try and uh, uh, put down arthroscopy as a diagnostic thing by presenting uh, their series of uh, arthrograms and uh, correlating these with uh, open open uh, arthrotomies. Uh, uh, and it was quite interesting uh, because uh, it, it took a, uh, took quite a while, but it, it uh, eventually convinced uh, these... Uh, but then the, the next step was that uh, in came MRI. Yeah. And is it... Is it fair to say that MRI conquered arthroscopy as a purely diagnostic tool? Uh, I, I, I class it as, um, as complementary. I think there are other people who probably... Um, I don't think it conquered arthroscopy in the knee. I think it actually surpassed uh, uh, arthroscopy in the shoulder because there are a lot of people who just won't and I myself, I didn't operate on a shoulder unless I could um, do an MRI first to have some idea of what uh, uh, pre-planning your surgery. I want to just sort of get on now to a very important part of your life when you were president of the Australian Orthopaedic Association in 1994-5 and um, you know, it's an example of how you've given back to the profession over the years. You've been president of other other uh, societies as well. But how did you manage that balance between your own clinical work and the kind of administrative uh, duties of uh, high office in a in an association? John, when when I was uh, nominated uh, as uh, president of the ALA. Um, uh, fortunately, uh, this was going to be after I'd finished being president of the IAA. And so that un gave me a, a little lighter load. Um, but I decided that I had to become more efficient. Uh, and I set out my day uh, very rigidly, much more rigidly than I do now. Um, and um, I set aside certain times of the day that I would uh, do certain things. Um, and uh, I reserved all my uh, political, orthopedic political uh, phone ups uh, for when I got home at night. I'd come home, have my dinner, talk to the family. Then I would shut myself away at about nine o'clock and, and do those um, administrative things. During the day, I was um, very lucky, very fortunate. Uh, before I became president of the AOA, um, I was really solo practitioner. Uh, I did have um, another guy with me for a short period of time, but then we formed the Wakefield Orthopaedic Clinic. And um, it was, um, I, I was very fortunate in having had David Davidson who was, uh, had been president of the AOA uh, two, twice before uh, on, in, um, uh, I think it was um, about 91. Uh, he took over from uh, uh, Kevin King. And David was absolutely uh, so helpful and, and um, 
he he and others in the clinic uh, were fantastic in looking after my I would be able to operate the day before I went somewhere and they would look after my patients while I was away and so I I did have uh, I obviously had more time away from the practice but I was able to go away uh, with confidence that my practice would not be disrupted and my patients would be looked after. And I'm very... Uh, yeah. you, you chose as your vice president uh, a great man and a, and a great uh, pioneer yeah. in um, yep. uh, orthopedic sports medicine in, in Owen Deacon. Can you... Uh, so many of us loved uh, Owen. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Owen? I had a very good relationship with Owen. In fact, um, it, it began um, even just before the formation of the Australian Knee Society. I can't remember, I, I met Owen somewhere and um, we got talking and someone else, and I can't remember who said, uh, now look, Owen's doing all these sort of things. You, you, ought, to, you, ought, you ought to have a chat with him. And I called him up one day and I said, would you be amenable to me coming across to Melbourne and, 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 and watching you? And he said, what do you want about what, why would you want to watch me operate? And I said, well, there are a number of things that I think that we can talk about. And that's how our relationship began. And I used to, I used to go over and watch Owen and discuss things with him probably once a year. Uh, yeah. And... And of course, uh, our meetings at the Knee Society. And he had very similar uh, ideas about uh, various things, uh, reconstruction and uh, yeah, uh, no, we had a great relationship and he was very helpful during the year of uh, presidency. A, a, a tricky question, which I've often thought about, if you think about uh, sportsmen, you know, your champion, uh, let's say footballers who retire and then because they've been students of the game, they become coaches. Do you see a role for the twilighting surgeon to be a, a coach? I, I do. Uh, I, I, when I finished operating, I did uh, assisting until 18 months ago. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of the younger surgeons now, and I'm being very critical probably here. I think that they think that they know everything when they, they start um, and they proceed to do things uh, uh, properly without a lot of experience and, and giving advice about it. Uh, and I think there is a place for it, but I, I'm not sure that, mm. I think that some surgeons don't want to because they don't want to, they, first of all, they don't, they don't want to get their hands wet again. But they also, I think, are worried about giving advice. Yeah, David, we're drawing to a close, and I, I do thank you for this, but I've probably got one of the more difficult questions. Uh, as you know, they say that behind every great man there's a surprise woman. Um, <laughs> how, did, how did Anne cope with this sort of tyranny of distance and uh, uh, wow. international travel and being uprooted? Well, um, uh, I, I have to say that my whole family, but Annie in particular, has been incredibly tolerant, but very, very supportive. 
Um, we went to Toronto and we were very excited. Um, unfortunately, in Toronto, she did not have a good time because we lived 16 miles out of the city. We had one car and four kids. Um, and it wasn't until we'd been there six months that we moved closer to the, the city. And I was able to get on the underground train and, and go to the hospital directly uh, that way. And so she was allowed to be more mobile, but also my late friend, uh, Colin Steele Scott and his family uh, came to Toronto and, uh, and they lived only about a mile away from us. And so that was the, the second six months in Toronto was much happier. But other than that, she has been, she has backed me every, every inch of the way. I want to thank you so much. You've been an, uh, a, a genuine ornament to the uh, orthopaedic profession and uh, so many of us owe you uh, so much. Um, we'll leave the floor with you for any closing comments. Do you have any advice to uh, the rest of us? Well, I don't think I can give you any advice, John. I think I've learned a lot from you. But it's been a great pleasure to... Uh, be involved with uh, these uh, these sessions. I, I, it's uh, wonderful that uh, Raymond Cougar and and the committee and in, in uh, have done this because I think it's important to have history. Um, uh, I think I mentioned to you one stage uh, well, after that that um, talk I gave in, in the the AKS in Broome some years ago. Um, I gave a copy of the, the paper and, and the slides to a young colleague who eventually took, took over my country practice. And uh, I said, you might be interested in, in, in this uh, talk about it. He said, oh, uh, but we've always had arthroscopy. I said, no, <laughs> I said, no we haven't had, always had arthroscopy. Well, uh, this has been uh, an initiative of the... Archives Committee of um, yeah. uh, Vesikos, uh, uh, which was chaired by Ramon Kugat and now by Per Enstrom. And uh, it's been their uh, initiative and your name has been at the forefront, uh, David, and uh, you are a giant and, and uh, we are very, very grateful to you. Thank well you so Thank much. You. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'll, uh, uh, we must uh, get together when we when we're allowed to cross borders again. <laughs> All the best, David. Good on you. Okay. Thanks, Thanks so much. very much. Thank you so much.